The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Using the uh, Black Pew Bible, that's going to be found on page 536. Would you please rise for the reading of God's Word? Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest." as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Coming, right? Christmas Day, one week out. So where, where are my little kids at? Raise your hands if you would consider yourself a little kid here. All right. Anyone, little kid here getting excited about Christmas? Are Christmas presents starting to show up underneath your guys' Christmas trees? Yeah? Okay. Uh, where are my older kids at? This would be you adults who still think yourself, okay, so, all right, Christmas Day is coming. Anyone getting excited, anticipation, building towards that day, the presents under the tree, etc.? yeah? So this is a good feeling, right, this anticipation and this excitement. What I want you to see is that that feeling of anticipation and excitement, uh, according to your Bible, is actually a gospel feeling, The gospel tells us and encourages us and invites us to be excited and to anticipate Christ. What you're going to see this morning from the text out of Isaiah 9, like if you want, like, give me classic Christmas. We just read it from Isaiah chapter 9 out of the Old Testament. I think the only maybe other rival classic Christmas text might be Luke 2, right? Can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about, says Charlie Brown? Like, yeah, let me tell you, Linus, right? Luke 2, classic text. But the reason why I say that feeling of excitement and anticipation is a gospel feeling is because what you're going to see out of Isaiah 9 this morning 
is this Christmas anticipation, this Christmas excitement is the exact kind of anticipation and excitement that the people of Isaiah's day would feel. Because of the things that Isaiah just said there in verses 2, 6, and 7. And it's the same for us, right? We live on the opposite side of this first arrival of Jesus, but we've been talking for a while now out of Luke. What? There is going to be a second arrival of Jesus. And all of God's people, if gospel excitement and gospel anticipation, what are we longing for? Are we not longing for the return of the king so that we can know forever the kind of forever rule and reign of our king on the throne of David? And he shall reign forever and ever. That's what we're longing for, is it not? So this season is designed to pour like gasoline on that gospel anticipation and that gospel excitement. And my hope is that you're not dousing that like you're or putting it out, but that you're fanning it into flame, okay? So this morning, we're going to see this kind of idea just scream at us from this text out of Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to see out of a sermon that I'm just titling this morning, A King is Coming, we're going to see this main idea that a king is coming whose light will shine in our darkness. You're going to see this morning that Isaiah is talking to a people who are living in darkness. He's going to lean on this darkness-light metaphor very heavily. And he's going to remind them, call them, lift your eyes to the horizon. Because there's a king who is coming. And this king is going to be a king who will come and his light is going to shine in our darkness. And we're going to see what that means from this very Christmassy kind of text this morning. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. What we need, if we're going to hear the word of God proclaimed and we're going to come and submit ourselves to the authority of God's word is we need God's help, don't we? If your mind is like my mind, if your heart is my heart, like even right now as I'm preaching, I, I can be prone to distraction, says the preacher, like whose job is to explain the text right now. If my heart and my mind can be prone to be distracted, I'm only assuming your heart, your mind can be prone to be distracted right now. So here's going to be my encouragement. I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray here in a minute, but I'm going to linger about 15, 20, 25 seconds or so to give you a chance to pray for yourself. To ask the Holy Spirit, will you give me eyes to see Jesus right now this morning? Holy Spirit, would you help me in the midst of all the things that are trying to get me to not see Jesus? Will you give me like heavenly, heavenly focus right now? So I can hear and understand Jesus from a text that might be so familiar to us. Most of us are maybe wanting to fall asleep during this text because it's so familiar. But there's gold in them there hills. And I want us to be able to hear this. So ask the Spirit, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to give you guys a couple of seconds to pray for yourself, and I will pray, pray for us, okay? Father, would you give us eyes to see? the king of kings that we were just singing about earlier. 
Holy Spirit, would you give us minds to understand and then from our seeing of Jesus and our understanding of Jesus from this text, we'd be able to enter in to the chorus of that song we sang earlier. We're truly, as a result of God's word proclaimed and our happy submission to it, we would be able to praise the Father, praise the Son, Praise the Spirit, our, our God, who is three in one. Holy Spirit, would you assist me to declare the glories, to magnify our King of Kings, King Jesus, this morning. It is in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you remember, this is the third week of Advent, and we've been looking at the Old Testament. We've been trying to wrestle with what have the Old Testament prophets been calling us to see? We've been using this language, right, of how God's people are an expectant people, we're a waiting people, we're an in-between kind of people. And last week, we saw specifically from the prophet Micah that this coming one that we are setting our hopes on for us the second time, for God's people, for these prophets for the first time, Micah said, what you guys need to understand is that this one that is coming, he is going to be God's shepherd. And we talked about the shepherdness of this coming figure. And then we said specifically that the New Testament overtly connects for us that the coming shepherd of Micah is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bethlehem baby that we talk about at, at Christmas time. But if you also remember, and we, we touched on it a little bit, what we said was Micah also told us that God's shepherd who was coming was also going to be a king. He was going to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And this morning what we're doing now is we're turning to a new prophet, we're turning to the prophet Isaiah, but what you need to know is that the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Micah, they were like buddies, they were contemporaries, they were, they were living during the same season of the people of God. And the prophet Isaiah is going to not just talk about a shepherd king, but he's just going to fully lean in to the kingness of this coming figure who will be light, who will be life, and who, Isaiah says, in the darkness of our world, in the darkness of sin, in the darkness of evil that we find ourselves in as a Genesis 3 kind of people, that there is coming a king. And his light that he brings will pierce and shine in our darkness. It's interesting that one way to define darkness is like this. It's to say that darkness is the absence of light. That's a really, really common definition. I fear it's like, just talk about darkness. It's the absence of light. And what's weird about darkness, though, is that even though it's sort of like an intangible thing, like, right, I can't go scoop up like a half cup of darkness, right? Like, I can't go touch it and put my hands on it. There are times, and this is what's weird about darkness, there is times when darkness can feel really weighty, can't it? Darkness can feel really heavy. Sometimes if you're a little kid, right, I'm thinking Kevin McAllister going downstairs in the basement, right, and he's scared, it's a little dark, the furnace and all that kind of stuff, right, there's some darkness there that can feel weighty to us, but maybe some of us have felt the darkness of just evil, the darkness of sin, the dark and the weightiness 
of a world that's been marked by the fall of Genesis 3. And it's this weightiness of darkness, it's this heaviness as we look around as God's people. And what we do is we recognize oftentimes it feels like darkness has swallowed everything up. And we're like, is there any light? Like what we're talking about in the scriptures, can we see light anywhere? But here's the beautiful power of light. The beautiful power of light is that even in the midst of extremely thick, deep, heavy, weighty darkness, even the faintest flicker of light can feel like the noonday sun. Maybe some of you guys have been there before. You've been down in the basement and the bowl blows out and it's just like, where am I? And then, I don't know, like just through the crack in the window, there's a little, a little shaft of light and it feels like the noonday sun as the light pierces the darkness. But what you need to know is that we catch glimpses of that all around us during the Christmas season because during the Christmas season, we see what begin to pop up on people's houses and on little green trees in the corners of people's homes. What do we see? Christmas lights. So when you think about it, there is a gospel aspect to the lights on your Christmas tree. You're actually preaching the gospel in a sense when you go outside and you hang lights on the outside of your house because when every tree is turned on and when every home is trimmed with light, that light captures our attention and that radiance of those lights in the darkness is it pierces the midnight blackness of a December night. It reminds us, those little lights, that no matter how thick darkness might be, light can penetrate the darkness. There's a reason why you cruise the neighborhood and you, you find that strip of houses that was in that block on the neighborhood that's just like lit up. It's bright. It attracts us because it's light pushing back the darkness. And there's something very gospel about this. Well, what you need to see is that these verses in Isaiah are that. They are light-piercing darkness. This is classic Christmas, like I said to you. But what you need to know is that as we go to a pretty classic text, a pretty, pretty famous text, is that these words from Isaiah were not written to give us warm fuzzies during the most wonderful time of the year, just to feel good about ourselves, you know, yeah, a son has been given to a child has been born, you know. No, it's with these words very carefully chosen by Isaiah, carried along by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament tells us that the prophet is telling us that this child king that we read about in verse 6, this child king is the answer that you need. This child king is the answer that I need to the destructive darkness of sin that has swallowed us whole. Thus, when you turn into Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2, we see God is solving our darkness problem by sending a light into our darkness. And that is point number one in verses one and two. God is solving our darkness problem. That's the thing you're going to hear me say in a couple of minutes is that you and I cannot solve our darkness problem. Darkness can't solve darkness. We need someone who is life and light to come to us and to penetrate and enter into our darkness to push and shine that darkness out. 
And that's what Isaiah is telling the people of God then, and it is still good news for you and I now. So in your copy of Scripture, you can look at your Bible starting in verse 1 and notice this language of darkness and light that Isaiah just sprinkles in all over the place. Verse 1, he says this, But, but there will be no gloom. Gloom is a darkness word. There's going to be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Pretty famous verse here, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. So notice, Isaiah says, I want you, if you can get in your mind just all the interplay that you know between how darkness and light works, I want you to see something about the world we live in, and I want you to set then your mind on God's problem solving for our darkness, because he's about to do something crazy that, we've, that you can't even imagine. So I'm convinced that because of these verses, verses 1 and 2, that if the possibility for Christmas lights existed in, Isaiah, in Isaiah's day, I'm positive Isaiah's house would give Clark Griswold a run for his money. Okay? And I'm positive of this because the word that best describes Isaiah's world is darkness. And it's not darkness like somehow scientifically, like the sun was less bright that many thousands of years ago, and it's more bright today, but it's because of the spiritual darkness. And I think because Isaiah fully grasps what he's saying here, and he recognizes, like, I can paint a gospel picture to the world around me by decking out my house in lights in the midst of darkness, he would be fully on board with the gospel realities of Christmas light. So I'm like, oh, Clark, you think you've got a house that looks like the noonday sun? Let me show you something, right? And so I think Isaiah would have been all about it. Spiritual darkness, it was the world that Isaiah lived in. As a contemporary of the prophet Micah, like we saw last week, Micah's world, his real-life darkness that we saw, it's the exact same kind of darkness for Isaiah. They're living at the exact same time. Isaiah, his world was dark with evil. What kind of evil? If you just read the several chapters leading up here into Isaiah 9, Isaiah called the people to see that they were a sinful nation. It was the darkness of sin that had permeated the people. These people were laden with iniquity, he says. They were offspring of evildoers. They were dealing in corruption, in the darkness of rebellion. They had forsaken and despised the Lord God, he said. If you remember last week, the leaders, the prophets, the priests of Micah's day would have been the same leaders, prophets, and priests of Isaiah's day. The prophets were false. The priests were greedy for gain. The rulers were unrighteous and unjust. Everywhere you looked, if there was like, there was like a person of God who's just like, oh, like I love God. I'm pursuing him. My, my hope is Abrahamic. It's like, like Abraham's faith. I'm trusting in the coming of God's redeemer, but everywhere I look, it's just so dark. There seems to be no light anywhere at all. My world is filled with the darkness of evil. But Isaiah says, it's just not the darkness that is without. That's the problem. He says, your world is a darkness that is coming from within as well, because Isaiah's world was also dark in ignorance. 
meaning that no one knew where to go to find the cure for the darkness of evil without and the darkness of evil within. Does this any of this sound familiar? Does this not sound like our day? Where the darkness of evil just seems to permeate everything. Like Satan's dark kingdom. The prince of the power of the air. He's ruling over a kingdom, and it's a dark kingdom. And everywhere you look, it seems like his, his dark kingdom has infiltrated everything. And it has. And then this darkness of ignorance, it seems to be everywhere as well because nobody seems to know how to fix the darkness problem. And that was exactly what was going on in Isaiah's day. If you look at verse 1 real quick, you'll notice there where he says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The reason why he's using that contrasting conjunction right there, but, is because he just said some really important things at the very tail end of Isaiah chapter 8. So if you just take your eyes and glance to like the previous four verses at the end of chapter 8, if you back up there, Isaiah explains why we need God to solve this darkness problem. And this is the reason why he begins to say, don't lose hope in the darkness because God is going to shine in the midst of the darkness. But he explains what this looks like. So chapter 8, verse 19, notice he says, listen, the people of God who who should be pursuing God, but in the darkness of ignorance, they're going about, verse 19, inquiring of mediums and necromancers instead of God. They're like, we need answers. The world is dark. How do we fix the darkness? Here's the answer. Not God, heaven forbid, but let's go talk to mediums. Let's go talk to people who talk to the dead. That's how we're going to find answers for this darkness. Then you glance into verse 20. And Isaiah says, here's what the people should be doing. They should be consulting the teaching and the testimony. That's language for like, they should be going to God, hearing what God has to say. But notice what he says. They are a people who have no what? No dawn. That's darkness language. There's no light in their life. It's just darkness. No dawn. In other words, they are in darkness to God's word, and thus they are in darkness to God's ways. Thus they are going about pursuing evil. Now notice in verse 21, the crushing consequence of the darkness of evil and the darkness of ignorance in their lives, verse 21, is that they are greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. So they're going to look around and say, darkness is dark. I don't like the darkness. I'm not going to go to God. I'm going to pursue everything but God. Then they begin to reap the consequences of not pursuing God, and then they're going to shake their fists up at God and say, your fault. And you can see how the darkness spiral is just spinning these people out and away from God. They're going to rage against their king, and they're going to rage against their God. They're going to turn their faces upward, and really, really key there is there at the end of verse 22, and it says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. In the darkness of evil and ignorance, the people are looking to the earth, Isaiah says. What does he mean by that? It's this, that they are looking around at human resources, earthly things, begging, hoping, believing that human 
earthly resources and things are going to fix the problem of darkness that they find themselves in. But Isaiah says, but behold, the consequence of them not going to God and believing the things of this earth, the darkness of this earth can fix the darkness they're in, all it's going to do is give them more darkness, more gloom, and thrust them further and deeper into thick darkness. Anyone ever been there before? You're like, this thing's dark, the darkness of evil, the darkness of wickedness from without or the own dark corners of sin in my own heart, and you begin to go, I don't like this. That's a good impulse to say, I don't like the darkness here. But then we begin to go, surely not the churchy stuff that I grew up with is the answer. Surely not the Jesus stuff. Surely not the Sunday school answer stuff. Surely not the Bible stuff. Surely not the Christmas time stuff. That can't be the answer. Then what do we do? We set that aside very happily, and then we run after more darkness, only to find out more darkness just made the darkness more worse, to use not the best English in the world. Remember, that's exactly what was going on in Malachi's day. We learn from the prophet Malachi that the brokenness of our darkness cannot and will not fix the brokenness of sin. If the darkness of our sin is ever going to be fixed, what we need is a triumphant brightness unlike anything else that we've ever seen before. And that's exactly what Isaiah turns to in these opening verses of Isaiah chapter 1, when 9 chapter 1, chapter 9 verse 1, when he comes in and says, but, but, I know where you're at. I know the darkness of your heart. I know the darkness of sin. I know the darkness of evil. I know the darkness of this world. But there will be no gloom. There will be no darkness. Why? Because the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, he says. He is turning our eyes to the hope that God is coming to fix our problem that we cannot fix ourselves. So yes, when you look in Isaiah's world and then you look at things in our world, what you begin to see is things really are dark. Are they not? Things are dark in our world, without and within. Nevertheless, sinners have this high-octane hope that on those dwelling in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice how Isaiah says this. He doesn't say... From the world, a light has dawned, but he says on the world, a light has dawned. What he's saying is that the piercing light of verse 2, it is screaming at us the good news of Christmas right now because the promise of salvation has come to those walking and dwelling in deep darkness. It wasn't something the darkness birthed out of itself. It was God saying, I'm going to send something to you because that's the only way the darkness of sin and evil are going to be fixed, is if I come and fix this problem. You see, truly in the darkness of our sin, there is God-given hope for sinners. Because the light we need has come from outside of us and it has come to us. And that's point number two. We have God given hope for sinners. And that's what Isaiah lays in front of his people in verses three through seven. Saint in Christ, you have God given hope. Just like those saints back then had God given hope. 
And I hope you see I really mean what I say when it is God-given hope. Where does your hope come from for your day-to-day life? Where does your hope rest in your parenting? Where does your hope rest in your marriage? Where does your hope rest for the conversations you have while at work? Where does your hope rest for the struggles that you have with sin? Where does your hope rest for being able to faithfully declare Christ to a neighbor? If it sounds like, if your answer sounds like this, well, I just sort of lean on self and I trust in my own understanding and my hope is a bootstrap, grin and bear it, white knuckle, bite the bullet kind of hope, the Bible would gently and sometimes not so gently come alongside you and be like, you're resting on a false hope. If your answer to any of those kinds of questions sounds a little like this, man, like I ain't leaning on me. I'm leaning on the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ that God has given to me. And then all of a sudden you're swimming in the exact same streams that Isaiah is swimming in. That he's preaching to the people and he's encouraging you and me with. We have hope that's been given to us. Sinners, saved by grace, God has gifted us something. What has he gifted us? Notice how Isaiah in verse 3 and following begins to lift our hearts with the God-centeredness of this hope. Verse 3, look at the you have language. Verse 3, you have, that is God, you have multiplied the nation. God, you have increased its joy. And notice that the result, the consequences in verse 3 of God multiplying a nation, God increasing joy is that we, the people, begin to rejoice Before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So notice that God-given hope is a joy kind of thing. And God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to enter your world. I'm going to pierce the darkness of your sin and the world around us with a brightness that has never been seen before. And it's going to result in your joy. That's why we're just saying, joy to the world. Why Why is that a Christmassy kind of song? is originally aimed by the author to be about the second coming of Christ, believe it or not. That wasn't intended by the author to be like a Christmas song. But we've robbed it and we've pulled it forward to the first coming of Christ because when he first came, it's joy to the world. And when he comes back again, all the saints are going to be singing Christmas songs in that sense. We're going to be singing joy to the world when not a child king comes back, but the king of kings, sword out of mouth, tat on thigh, righteousness and justice. The unbelieving world is going to be falling to pieces. The the saints of God are going to be singing with all the breath in their lungs, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy. Notice the you in verse 3 is God. God is acting toward us for our joy. Joy that arises from God taking charge. Joy that arises from God taking care to fix our deepest problem to meet our most pressing need. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, our hope in the darkness of sin is that we have this liberator who's going to come and he's going to fight for us. For the, verse 4, yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. So Isaiah is talking about like the people of God. There's this burden. There's the staff they're leaning on. There's this oppressor who's at the door. But notice the you have language. But you have God. This liberator has broken these things as on the day of Midian. Isaiah is going back to Judges 7. Do you remember the, the, the judge Gideon? 
right? The whole fleece and all this stuff, like a bunch of guys. He's like, no, actually, I want you to go to war with like 300 people, that Gideon. Isaiah is making that reference there because he's saying, listen, like a Gideon-esque liberator who's going to come and he's going to deliver us in amazing ways. You're supposed to read the Gideon story and go, how in the world did 300 people beat a, an overwhelming army? It shouldn't happen. And you're right, but it did. Because God loves to use weakness to overpower strength to prove that he is the one who delivers. And Isaiah is saying, this coming one is going to be like that. It's going to come in a way where you're going to look like, I don't know that God's answer here should be able to fix this. Because God's answer is about to say is, I'm going to fix your darkness problem by sending you a little baby boy. That's my answer to your darkness problem. And most of us go, yeah, I don't know that that's going to cut the mustard. (laughs) I've seen baby boys and they just sort of poop and pee and cry a lot, right? Like, I don't know how that's going to fix my darkness problem. But God is saying, yeah, but do you remember Gideon? If I can do that with Gideon, I can do this with the Bethlehem baby. He's warming them up for what he's about to say. Verse 5, you jump forward. He says, not only does our hope rest in the liberator who delivers us, But our hope rests secure because our liberator will put a final end to conflict itself. One day the tyranny of sin's darkness is going to finally be over. Praise God, all suffering that we experience here, this side of heaven, will finally be no more. For every boot, verse 5, of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, notice, will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's going to be this magnificent bonfire of grace and mercy at the end of it all where the liberator that Isaiah is talking about says he's heaping all of our conflicts onto this giant bonfire that's going to be consumed by the mercy and grace of this liberator. But the question is, who in the world is this liberator? Who is this joy-increasing, darkness-delivering, enemy-defeating figure? And that's where Isaiah bends over and whispers to you, you need to come and stand amazed. Because God's answer to everything that has terrorized your soul is a child. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. That's God's answer to your darkness problem. Like I just said, most of us look at that and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but Isaiah is saying this child king is going to be the liberator you need. Now, because verse 6 is so familiar, it's such a familiar part of the Christmas story, the danger for every single one of us right now is that our familiarity with this kind of language, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, government on his shoulder is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're so familiar with that. Our familiarity can blunt the razor's edge of hope. We hear that and we're like, oh, yeah, son or something wonderful, I don't know, maybe some things. But if you can put yourself into the shoes of the people that Isaiah was first talking to, getting there in that heart space and in that head space, the good news hope of verse 6 doesn't blunt the edge, it actually rehones it to be as razor sharp as it is intended to be. If you put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah's original audience, it's just not hard to see how the announcement that your darkness problem is going to be fixed, they would be going, yes, finally, that's the 
That's the gospel Christmas present anticipation and excitement thing I was just talking about at the beginning of the sermon. They would be going, yes, like I can't wait for that gift to come. And then simultaneously to stagger back and rock back a little bit in their chair when they're like, what? Like the anticipatory excitement gift is going to be a baby boy? Like that is your answer, God, to, to the darkness that surrounds me and the darkness that is within my heart? It's just plain bewildering. And it should bewilder us. But this is exactly what Isaiah is preaching. <laughs> the darkness of oppression, the darkness of injustice, the darkness of violence and abuse that some of us have given and some of us have received, the gloom of racism, the gloom of homelessness, the gloom of poverty that some of us have given and some of us have received. The blackness of sin that corrupts you, the abyss of evil that dwells in your own heart. Isaiah leans forward and he whispers in your ear, Beloved, all of this, all of this will find its defeat in the one who shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you're just like, I just don't quite understand how all that works, then I think you're exactly where you need to be. Because that's exactly where God's people would have been when Isaiah was writing this to them. You see, with the fullest clarity imaginable, the New Testament, if we jump forward into the New Testament, the New Testament screams at us with like a bullhorn dialed to 11 that the fulfillment of this child king in Isaiah 9 verse 6 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus declared of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Apostle Paul tells us that it is because of Jesus that God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light and has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, oh, by the way, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is supernatural in wisdom. He is the genius of all geniuses. He knows what to say, how to say it perfectly in every scenario. The invitation is you need to scoot forward a little bit and listen to him. He is mighty God who has come in victorious power. He is the one qualified to get the job done because he has the strength needed to shine in your darkness and scatter the night. Jesus is the everlasting Father. This one sort of trips us up a little bit because we're like, Father, Son, Spirit, Trinity, like what's going on here? What Isaiah is saying is when this one who will come, Jesus, he's going to be very fatherly in his care for his fellow brothers and sisters. You son in Christ, you daughter in Christ, if you know salvation in him alone, in Christ alone, you've been on the receiving end of the fatherly care of the Savior. 
He will be the Prince of Peace, the divine ruler who reconciles us while we were still his enemies. The question that follows up, and I think this is why Isaiah goes where he goes, it is the question like, well, okay, that's great, that's who he is, but how will he rule over us? How will he reign over us? And that's what we see when all that government language begins to show up in verses 6 and 7. If we were to ask the question, well, what kind of rule would this prince bring? What of his government? Isaiah says, well, not only shall the government be upon his shoulder, but of the increase of his government and of peace, there's going to be no end whatsoever. Friends, praise God that the rule of King Jesus is going to be nothing like our government when the day comes. Praise God for that. Praise God that there is coming a day when it will no longer be Republican versus Democrat. Praise God there's coming a day when it's not going to be senator or representative. Praise God there's coming a day when it's not going to be policy over people. Why? Because King Jesus is going to rule and reign over an ever-expanding empire of peace. He's going to rule and reign over an empire of grace and mercy that's just going to keep swallowing up darkness and keep pressing forward, consuming all things until all things are consummated, fulfilled forever and perfect in him. That's what Isaiah is saying right now. That's the hope. So what it does is it leads us to, like, very practically in our day and age, we're already beginning to be bombarded with political stuff for 2024. You can take a deep, deep sigh of relief. And you can pull back from the edge a little bit when you're prone to want to get wrapped around the axle about Republican, Democrat, policy, people, Senate, House of Congress, all these sorts of things, and be like, listen, man, ultimately the thing that identifies me is this. I have a king, and he's the king of kings. And of his government, it is an ever-expanding empire of peace, and there is going to be no end to it, and that is where I am a citizen of, ultimately. And that kind of reality invades my present. You see, we can praise God for these things, for the ever-expanding empire of peace. Beloved, isn't this the kind of God you want? Isn't this the kind of God you need? Isn't this whom your heart has waited for in the darkness? Isn't this the kind of salvation that you long for? Isn't this the king your soul was designed to be glad and rejoice in? It is Jesus who rules on the throne of David and over his kingdom. It is his just and his righteous kingdom which is established from this time forth and forevermore. And praise God that when Isaiah is saying these things, he's just not wishing upon a star, really, really hoping that there's even something like microscopically true about what he's saying. He's not pinning these things with doubt in his mind. He is pinning these things with the full-blown assurance. He is pinning these things, ultimately, I would argue, with the certainty of the good news of Christmas, meaning that when he says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, he's saying you have heaven's assurance that what I'm telling you is no faulty hope. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. What does it mean to be zealous? If someone is zealous, they are this. They are eagerly and passionately committed to seeing that a thing comes to pass no matter what. 
In other words, when Isaiah says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, this is heaven's assurance that fueled by the white-hot passion of God's zeal, the child king of verse 6 will shatter the darkness of your sin. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And notice that the proof, the proof of God's zealous commitment is that to us, a son is given. That's the proof. How was it the proof? The proof that his zealous commitment is seen in a son given is that verse 6, this given language is the language of Christmas. Do you smell Christmas there in verse 6? Stick your nose in your Bible real quick. Take a big whiff. Come on now. You can do this. Verse 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is what? Given. What do we give at Christmas time? Gifts. Christmas time is about giving gifts. It's right there in the word given. Gifts are given at Christmas time. And what Isaiah is saying in verse 6 is this, is that God's gift to you is that the child king of Isaiah 9, listen, God's gift to you is that the child king of Isaiah 9 is going to grow up and become the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's the good news of, of Christmas. You see, we don't just celebrate Christmas and say Christmas is good news because a little baby was born. Ultimately, we celebrate and say we can have a gospel of Christmas, a good news of Christmas, because the Bethlehem baby would one day be born in a cradle and then he would grow up to be nailed to Calvary's cross. Isaiah 53 says that the child king of Isaiah 9, verse 6, would one day be pierced for our transgressions and one day would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace would be upon him and by his wounds we will be healed. That's the good news of Christmas. That's the glory of Christmas. And so the question is, so what? How do I respond to this? The first question to ask yourself, the first way to respond is to ask, have I received this gift of God's Son? If it's true that Isaiah 9, verse 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, have I received the Son that He gave to me, the Son that would go to the cross, the Son that would bear the weight and wrath of God for our sin, the Son who would die, the Son who would resurrect, the Son who would ascend and sit down at the right hand of God, the Son who would say, it is finished, the Son who would say, come to me, all who are where." weary and heavy laden, the son who would say, I can give you rest, the son who says, my peace I give to you, the son who says, I seek after the one, I am the good shepherd, I'll leave the 99, I'll go after you. Have you received the gift of that son, embraced him by faith as your savior? Have you received the gift of God's son? The second thing is to just notice is this, and this is the last thing here, is to notice how Isaiah talks in the past tense about events that haven't even happened yet. Do you see that in verse 2? Look at your Bible, look at verse 2 real quick. Remember, when Isaiah is writing right now, he's writing about events that are future of him. The child king of verse 6 hasn't been born yet, but he's going to talk about the events of this future birth of this future child king in the past tense because he's, that's how, how sure he is that it's going to happen. Do you see that there? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Well, the light of this child king hasn't come yet. He hasn't been born yet. It's going to be another 700 years before he's born. But he's saying the people of God have seen it. Well, how have they seen it if it hasn't happened yet? What he's doing is he's leaning into the future certain hope that there's no possible way that the zeal of the Lord is going to falter on this one. The zeal of the Lord is so passionately committed to this child king coming that Isaiah says, people of God, in the midst of your present darkness, look forward to that future hope and realize that that future hope of this son arriving is so secure, so certain, so sure that we can talk about it in the past tense and let that reality inform our present tense right now. That's what he's doing to the people of God in Isaiah chapter 9. Well, guess what? The exact same thing goes for you and me right now today. But see, we live on the opposite side of what Isaiah was talking about in verse 6. This child king has come. That's what happened about 2,000 years ago. Bethlehem baby, Mary and Joseph, right? But remember this. The first coming has happened, but has the second coming happened yet? Has the second coming happened yet? No. So the exact same kind of gospel excitement, gospel anticipation that would have pervaded the hearts of Isaiah's people when they were looking forward to the first coming, guess what? That's the exact same kind of gospel anticipation and gospel excitement that you can have for the second coming. And what Isaiah teaches us is in your 2023 December darkness of the world you live in, the darkness without, the darkness of sin within, you have the future hope that King Jesus is coming back. Amen? And that future hope is so certain we can talk about it and think about it like it is a past event already done did that can inform and invade your present tense so that when you go walking out of these doors, you don't go walking out as a defeated son, a defeated daughter in the household of God. You don't go out as one that has to be overrun by the darkness. You, son, you, daughter, can go out banking on the unshakable realities, anchoring your life on this fact that the darkness of sin will not last, the gloom of Satan's dark kingdom will not prevail, the midnight blackness of death will be forever shattered one day by the King of kings and the Lord of light. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do what? Bring Jesus back. So now you get to get up, saint, and you get to respond in worship, and you get to respond in the Lord's Supper, and then you get to go out into the next six days and 22 hours being a bullhorn for the glory of God. Why? Because my Jesus is coming back, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts said it's going to get done, and I'm going to take him at his word, and I'm going to live my life accordingly. Amen? All right, let's pray. Thank you for the gospel of Christmas, King Jesus. Thank you that it all centers on you and revolves around you. Thank you that the story of Christmas from Isaiah 9 has overtly practical implications for my life. This isn't a warm fuzzy surrounded with like eggnog and Christmas tree candles. This is good news for a dark world. And so Lord, cause us to wrestle with these realities. If I am someone here today that are like, I, I don't even, I've never even accepted this gift. Lord, would you cause them to wrestle and to then to receive the gift of God's son for their salvation? If someone is just wrestling with the overwhelming pressing in of a dark world without darkness of sin within, Lord, would you bring them to lay 
all their hope in the firm foundation of King Jesus who is coming back. And let that inform the present. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.